Coming up on this week's show, the hottest mobile game comes to your old PC. A new mouse for your Amiga. And we chat about the retro magazine revival with our expert panel. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of beat-em-up games, you need to check out Ghost Ray, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, covering 37 years of that incredible genre. You can find out more about that and order right now on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 316, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Rafi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another nostalgia-filled show where we bring you up to speed on all the big stories from the last seven days in the world of retro gaming and technology. And of course, we bring you a very special guest as well. I've got to say, I had to kind of pinch myself and look at what year it is because on my table in front of me right now, I've got four magazines, one of which covers the Amiga, one that covers the uh, Sega Mega Drive, the Dreamcast, and the Master System, another one with uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and a BBC Micro on the cover called Pixel Addict. Paper is hot again right now. Yeah, and this week's episode's really hot as well. We're going to be talking about the kind of retro magazine revival that's going on at the moment, and it's absolutely mental. You know, we were at the Doncaster video game um, event, and we saw Amiga Addict there, but also Sega Powered and Pixel Addict. And these are all new magazines. So it's amazing to kind of go to this show and see the new magazines there. And we thought, why not get these people on the show to talk about this kind of retro magazine revival that's been happening? Because these specialist magazines are something that we massively miss. And getting them today, even in retail stores, which, uh, you know, it's going to be happening. It's, it's, it's really interesting. A little disclaimer, Ravi does actually work for Amiga Addict magazine, obviously, but I'm sure a lot of people know. And this is, I mean, because I used to read all the big Amiga mags back in the day, you know, stuff like Amiga Format, CU Amiga. I would religiously get these with my pocket money. And, you know, often I'd spend all my money on them. You know, Amiga Shopper I used to get as well, um, Games Master magazine. So back then it was kind of like the only way before the internet was widespread, that you could find out what was going on. And of course, those cover discs as well. I mean, I used to live for those back then. And you're right, I mean, because when we're at the Doncaster Gaming Market, I was actually going through a few of the old mags. But I've got to say, these uh, these new ones, like Sega Powered as well, which, you know, is a new Sega magazine on issue two right now, um, covering all the classic Sega consoles. When you read these, it does kind of take me back to being like 12 years old again sitting in my bedroom, you know, on my bed, like reading the latest gaming mags. It, you know, it really does feel like a throwback to that era. Yeah, and it's, it's becoming hugely popular. Like, at the moment, we've got an article that's uh, being written by The Guardian, and they're talking about all the different magazines and the kind of revival scene. And it's really interesting because, you know, Sega Powered's been one that's been kickstarted, and so is Amiga Addict. And it's kind of having these uh, kickstarted magazines. There's also a lot of other magazines out there. So this week, we're going to be mainly talking with Sega Powered editor Dean Mortlock, also magazine expert from Maximum Power Up. Now, Maximum Power Up uh, is a really good podcast where they've probably interviewed the most magazine guests that you've ever heard of. So that's a real kind of specialist one. And that's uh, Paul Monaghan. And we'll be talking to the new deputy editor of Amiga Addict and Pixel Addict, which is Ian Griffiths. And uh, I used to be the deputy editor 
but uh, he's taken he's taken my role. So I'm gonna try and remain neutral in this one and uh, not give him any hassle. <laughs> you didn't you didn't get sacked, did you, Ravi? He hasn't kicked you. No, no, I didn't get sacked. <laughs> I'm still writing for Amiga addicts. So I just uh, reduce my role a little. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm loving having these magazines out there again. I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of find out what goes into this. Because one thing that always blows my mind about Amiga Addict is the fact that it's actually made on Amigas. Yeah, it's made on Amigas, but it's also made completely collaboratively and virtually. So we hadn't met in person until last weekend. And uh, it's the same with Sega Powered as well. You know, a lot of these projects have been enabled by the internet and people being able to create it, edit it, create teams send it out, have collaborators and also have it, you know, collaboratively done and printed as well. Yeah, so it's incredible. So we're going to find out um, what goes into kickstarting and getting a retro magazine back onto the market in 2022 with our expert panel coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. I've got to say as well, I mean, going to the um, the Doncaster gaming market last weekend, Joe and I had a drive up on Saturday morning for a couple of hours. You know, you had to get back for the kid, had to get back for the dog. But we had a couple of hours where we just kind of went around and I've just been out there again and retro gaming shopping and going to an event for the first time in two years. It just felt like a return to normal. It was so much fun. It, it it was a lot of fun, and it did feel like a massive return to normal. But what I did just notice that we were joint at the hip the entire thing because a couple of us popped down. Um, Ravi went down with the Amiga Addict guys the night before, and then you were kind of yeah. like working at the event. Um, but we went we went down with some other friends as well, and they just dispersed to get the deals as soon as we got there. <laughs> but me and Dan, we kind of clung on to each other because it was so busy. Like, don't lose each other. Let's go around together. But it was amazing. And, and it was, I mean, it might have had something to do with the fact that I was with Dan, but it was amazing the amount of people that stopped us and spoke to us about the podcast and stuff like that. And, you know, even a lot of patrons uh, who, you know, we've never met in person before, which was really like, I kind of felt a bit starstruck when I met a couple of the people because I was just like, oh my God, like I talk to you every month for Patreon and meeting you in person now. So it was just a really, really fun, cool experience. And like you it, say, it, it was felt really nice. Again. It was really nice to see kind of community as well. So mm. like uh, I bumped into a lot of people from my Amiga user group as well. There were a lot of yeah. magazine people, um, just a lot of people, a few YouTubers there and stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. we picked up some bargains as well. I got an extremely weird uh, joypad for you, Joe. Yeah, the uh, the Nintendo Vortex um, tilt controller. Which uh, Have you figured which, out what that does yet? Yeah, it's, it's a flight simulator controller for the Nintendo 64 and steering wheel controller. So it, it, it's got like it's it's a bit ahead of its time but it's got like tilt controls in it but it's got like a like a base that you stick the controller to and the only way i can describe the controller is it looks extremely similar to a jaguar controller but with n64 buttons on it and then it fixes quite nicely into the into the uh into the base that then has you know like the sticky ploppy things on the bottom to stick to your desk um, you haven't licked them have you no i haven't no luckily it was still sealed <laughs> uh, so the box isn't sealed um, but it's in pretty good condition. But the actual controller itself was sealed, and I unsealed it and opened it on our most recent hangout on Sunday night, just gone. Um, so I've yet to use it. But yeah, really, really cool find and really f- nice gift 
from Ravi. As soon as we arrived, Ravi was just like, I found the most awesome thing for you, Joe. Here it is. I, I, I also bought myself a copy of My Horse and Me for the Wii, which yes. uh, I was very excited about. Yeah, and then took a picture of me holding it and said that it was my game. <laughs> Joe's favourite title. And I came home with their two Mega Drives, even though I already had one at home. Um, because I, I didn't have a Mega Drive 2, and I saw one for £30, and I thought, Wait, the Mega Drive 2 looks kind of cute. So I'll get one of those. And then I went around the corner and a guy was selling a, a Japanese Mega Drive. Obviously got the, like, the, the purple logo and the biggest 16-bit font. And I remember seeing that in game shops when I was a kid and thinking how much cooler it looks. I thought, I need one of those in my collection as well. So now I'm sitting next to, I've got them all set up on my table, three Mega Drives. It course. shows that um, bargains are still there to be had. It yeah. shows, aren't they? It does actually. Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. So. But what made me laugh is as soon as Dan picked them up, he said, hmm, I should really get a Sega CD2 now. And he was like, if we can, yeah. and we did find one, but it was boxed and it was like two hundred pound. And you were like, no, if we can find one unboxed, we'll grab it. But yeah, that just made me laugh. How as soon as you picked them up, you're like, I need to take a CD too straight away. I think it's because we haven't been to you know retro gaming market for so long. Mm. I was just like, right, okay, just let's spend and let's buy. Yeah. Some this stuff. is my yeah. only opportunity. I know. <laughs> well, you two were like the devil on my shoulders because I didn't spend any money right until like the last kind of twenty minutes. Um, and we were there for like a good three hours, but in the last 20 minutes, I kind of ran around everything I wanted and grabbed it. But yeah, you, you two, are, you, you're, you're a bad influence on me. That's what your wife says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, if, if you came along and said hello to us at the uh, Doncaster Gaming Market, it was great to uh, meet a bunch of listeners there as well. So uh, roll on the next event and uh, lots more hopefully coming up this summer. Now the world's uh, you know starting to get out of COVID at least. There's lots more going on. We won't get into that though. Let's have happy thoughts on this week's show. That's what this show is all about. Escapism. And talking about things that we love. So lots of news stories to get into this week. Now, um, this is quite interesting. Power Slave Exhumed. Now, I wasn't too familiar with this game, but this looks well up your street, Joe. This is a classic 90s shooter that's got a retro remaster. Yeah, man. So Power Slave Exhumed. So there's a quite a big history with Power Slave and Exhumed, isn't there, Avi? Um, but yeah. this, essentially, it's a Doom clone from 1996 that's been remastered but in a in america the game was called power slave but in europe the game was called exhumed so the re-release they've just called it power slave exhumed which makes sense you know why that was it's Um, because of the engine the game engine well also because uh the u.s title was in reference to iron maiden uh, iron maiden album which was known oh. as Power Slave. Oh, there so. you go. There we go. Yeah. Fact of the day from Ravi. Which had an Egyptian theme as well, which is kind of book yeah. uh, this game is based on. Yeah, yeah. so essentially um, it was a PC game in, I think, 95, 96. And then it came, it got ported to the Saturn and the PlayStation, which were very similar to the PC port, but also very different. But essentially it's a Doom clone first-person shooter, but it uses fully 3D rendered graphics with 2D sprites. And it was done by Lobotomy Software, who went on to do, you know, they worked on like, you know, a lot of the Duke Nukem games. And I feel like they also, did they work on Quake as well? Yeah, uh, so this so this was based on the build engine, which was mm. kind of the rival to Doom at the time um, yeah. by Ken Silverman. So this was based on the same engine that Duke Nukem 3D was on. Yeah, and, and, the, and the engine ones. is called the Power Slave engine, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure. I know it's just build, but um, it was yeah. 3D realms that kind of started to yeah. to work with it, and it and the idea was that it would it would really show the power off uh, mm. of the of the build engine, and uh, this 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 is very similar to a lot of kind of other build titles that came out like Blood, 
yeah. and uh, stuff like Shadow that. Warrior. But 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 yeah. but it did, re- yeah, and Shadow Warrior. But it did really well on the um, on the consoles as well, mm. which was quite surprising for this because it seemed like a very PC kind of title. Yeah, so they they weren't the most solid ports. You know, they did generally run at thirty frames per second, but they had a couple of issues, and you know, the Saturn version of the game looked very wide like big open corridors and big open areas for it to kind of work and then the playstation was a little bit more like the pc version it was a bit tighter but you know slightly better graphics but the saturn had like nicer lighting in it and apparently more dynamic lighting but essentially this remaster is very similar to the quake remaster that we covered a couple of months ago it's just a beautiful hd remake um not remake but hd remaster yeah um which has been redone by night dive studios who have redone you know a lot of these shooters recently but the kind of the look of the game it's out on you know xbox one ps5 ps4 and obviously on pc it looks i don't know if you guys have watched any of the footage of it or anything like that but it just it, it's very similar to you know to the quake remake it just it's that beautiful old school look but just with like amazing graphics um, yeah so it's it's in high resolution and like hmm. it's 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 basically a combination of the PlayStation version and the Saturn version. So mm. they didn't directly kind of change the maps or anything like that to, to to be like the PlayStation version. They combined both of them. So there's a lot of mm. like the geometry has been combined and stuff. So it's actually quite a unique experience. And you had two endings at the end of the game as well. So it's kind of depending on the choices that you made in the game, you would be presented with a different ending so i think this is actually going to be quite a unique experience it's like for for, for fans i'm sure they play the saturn version playstation yeah. version and notice all the differences but you know this having them combined together is is a really good idea and with the build engine as well it was always an engine that could be changed and have mm. extra resolution in there but it could also have like polymost um technology i remember they used to do really crazy mods of Duke Nukem 3D where it just looked really high-end in the graphics. And this kind of seems similar. It's it's also got better lighting and uh, yeah. there's, there's a lot more kind of 3D-ness to the environments. Yeah, they've, they've also gone back and like, you know, the sprites, the 2D sprites of the enemies, they've got that really nice hand-drawn pixel-perfect look to it now. Um, and obviously it wouldn't be a retro game remastered without all the filters as well. Like, so a lot of the reviews are saying like the, you know, the CRT, like the classic CRT filter on it is really nice. And you can really kind of play around with the settings and you can kind of try and make it look a little bit more like the Sega Saturn version. And you can make it look a little bit more like the PlayStation version. And, and to a point where you can even kind of play around with the pixel size on the screen. Yeah. You can like turn off the anti-aliasing as well. Mm. And you yeah. know, if you want to remove those kind of, perfections and stuff that have been done you can reduce it down to lower quality i don't know why you want to though this looks beautiful <laughs> for the nostalgia ravi yeah, for the- <laughs> i do love the fact that because it does look like a, a mid-90s shooter but on like the playstation 5 um it runs mm. at you know pretty much 4k in <laughs> 60 yeah. frames a second but with like mid-90s visuals it's uh it's very cool because i did when i went away in december we went to um a cottage up in north yorkshire um i was talking about the show at the time for my birthday uh took the dog up there you know it was literally middle of nowhere we had no phone signal no wi-fi anything uh but i brought my switch there and i was just playing quake on it on the tv Mm. in the cottage Mm. you're like you know whenever samantha was upstairs having a bath or whatever or getting ready to go out i'd spent hours on that game 
over the weekend. And actually, it was really quite nice because it kind of reminded me of, you know, when I play video games now, you've always kind of got your phone nearby and you, you stopping to check Twitter or Facebook or your email or always getting a bit distracted by something, but it was actually nice. It reminded me of gaming back in the 90s, the fact that I was fixated on the screen and there was no distractions around at all. So that was quite cool, actually. So I'm quite li- liking this uh, FPS revival, you know, these retro shooters that are coming out again. So this one's available now on um, PlayStation, Xbox and uh, Switch and PC as well. So you can get a hold of it. And uh, yeah, it does look like one. Of the- I-, I didn't play this back in the day, but it looks like a really atmospheric if, game. If you fancy that kind of Egyptian vibe in there and you know doom set in hell this is set in kind of a an egyptian city it's it's really cool and uh i I always liked how they kind of themed it and uh yeah it just seemed really nicely done it's they've all it's one of them they always have the really fun over the top weapons as well you know like doom and hexen and quake and all of them as well so yeah if you're itching for one of those kind of classic 90s 2d first person shooters then power slave exhumed is definitely the one well, there is something a lot of people seem to be very keen to get hold of at the moment, um, not only in this new Kickstarter that's running right now, but obviously we've got the um, the Amiga Classic, you know, the A500 Mini that's coming out very soon, that actually comes with a USB version of the classic Amiga Tank Mouse. And I've been seeing people going wild for this on Facebook groups and everything like, uh, are they going to be selling the Tank Mouse separately? I want a USB version of it. I can't wait. And now there is a Kickstarter. Someone is doing a wireless optical version of the Amiga Tank Mouse. And uh, this thing at the moment, it's got around, at the time recording this, around 25 days left to go. Um, the one around 65,000 pounds on Kickstarter at 41,000. So, you know, it's getting there. Uh, and this is pretty much just that, something that will work on your modern machine, on your uh, your Mac, your Linux desktop, your, your Windows machine. And it is a wireless optical version of the old school mouse that you got with your Amiga 500. Yeah, it, it will work on both. So it's by a, a guy called Lucas Remis. And uh, the idea is, yeah, it is wireless. But what I love about it is it has two modes. So right. it has the two point four gigahertz which um is kind of supported using a little db9 adapter so um i've actually got a wireless keyboard in my amiga at the moment you can get these little adapters you put the db9 in and then you put the little kind of wireless uh transmitter in there and that hooks up to your amiga or i'm sure it would work with an atari or any of the old school system and you can use that and uh, that means you'll be able to use this mouse on the classic. And it's actually a stretch goal to create a, a native Amiga uh, DB9 wireless receiver. So at the moment, that's not something that's connected to the project. But um, you might need that if you want to use it on the classic system. But then it has a little switch on the bottom. So you go, OK, I'm not using it on my classic system. I want to go to Bluetooth and I want to use it on my new computer. Then you just switch on the bottom, you change into Bluetooth mode. And uh, I think that's a really awesome kind of way of using it. So you can use it on your classic and your kind of new school stuff. But also it's got a few little functions in there, which uh, the previous ones didn't have. So it's got this mouse scrolling uh, ability. You know, there was never that middle scroller on the mouse. And the way that this is designed is it's actually, um, you know, in the middle of the uh, tank mouse, so you 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 move your finger up and down, and oh, like like a Mac Magic Mouse, yeah, like, exactly. Right? And 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 then that's used for scrolling. Now, 
scrolling isn't supported that well in the Amiga. So, um, you know, you might have to get one of the latest operating system versions or install a third party one. But I can imagine if you're using this on like, you know, a, a, a Mac or on a, a modern computer, that scrolling would be absolutely essential. And looking at the price of it, it's, it's quite a decent, you know, 36 euros for the uh, white version. You know what, though, because and I, I think this is really interesting, the fact that everyone's been going so wild about the tank mouse again. And I know, actually, I think Amiga kit sell like a, a conversion kit where you can actually, you know, I think there's a laser one. So what you can do is you can take the mouse ball out and then change it. So it's a, a kind of optical laser mouse. But my memory is that the first thing anyone would do when you got an Amiga back in the early 90s was to instantly throw that mouse in the bin and buy a better one because it was crap. <laughs> I just don't remember but anyone liking it. I had a that. laser one. Yeah, I had a laser and I took that one out. But the thing is, uh, you know, you'd spend most of the time cleaning your, t- your mouse ball, wouldn't you? And <laughs> you don't have that problem with this. Well, I used to get, you know, the, um, the Logic 3 speed mouse. That was always the one that I replaced the tank mouse with. And I've, I've still got a bunch of them on all my Amigas now. I think, I think the tank mice actually breed. So I opened my cupboard the other day and I've got about eight in there. And I don't know where they've all come from. Um, <laughs> there was only two originally. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> but it is, it's funny though, isn't it? The fact that, you know, something that people back when it was actually out and a thing, everyone complained about it and hated it. Now suddenly everyone's really nostalgic for it. Yeah. And like, I always found they were really nice mouses, mice mice but they the weight i did i didn't like the weight on it i didn't feel it was weighted down enough now this has two double a batteries in there so maybe that will help with the weight or maybe i'll put some lead inside mine (laughs) i just found them hideously uncomfortable that weird angle i thought it never was that nice on your hand and the biggest complaint i had with the originals were the buttons would always fail on them for me, which I imagine these new designs, you know, that they're going to have decent buttons on them. Not something, I think, you know, some of mine didn't even have micro switches and it was just kind of, um, you know, there's little kind of metal domes with a bit of sellotape over them. You know, really cheap. And 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 I I can imagine with this DB9, you can use it for pretty much like any system that's going to take that, uh, which is pretty awesome. You know, you'd be able to use it on your old school, I don't know, maybe Mega Drive if you had a, a kind of game that supported it. It'll take a lot to con- convince me that the tank mouse is decent, but I think, you know, looking at this, I am quite tempted to uh, to give it a try. Maybe it can win me over after about 30 years. So, uh, yeah, it is very cool to see it. And you wireless Amiga mouse on the market. So if you want to back down on Kickstarter, I'll link it up in our show notes along with everything else at theretrohour.com. Now, we did have our patrons hang out on Sunday night. Oh, that was so much fun, wasn't it? Oh, man, absolutely loved it. We had some, uh, we had quite a few new people on, um, and quite a few people. Yeah across the pond in america which was really cool um and you know they all they all understood the initiation uh and yep. you know showed off their uh their, their their kind of new pickups and their um their game rooms and some absolutely amazing stuff um but we, we were all quite reserved after the doncaster market and didn't didn't buy anything on this week's uh, hangout but yeah it was a really good one really nice busy one again so this is what we do um one sunday Every single month, we all get together on a Sunday evening around 8 p.m. UK time. A bunch of us all get on uh, Google Meets. We'll have a bit of a chat, just about anything retro. I think, you know, this week we're talking about yeah, DJ setups for a bit, and we're talking about Everdrives and uh, microphones we were talking about for a while and disco lighting. It was all kinds of stuff. Um, and obviously, we show off our retro gaming pickups and, uh, you know, some some obscure systems. I think we were talking about the uh, the TI-99 
this week, weren't we? Which um, was something I need the Atari 400 as well. That's the thing that when I'm on these hangouts, because I think I've got a pretty decent retro system collection, I suddenly realise, oh, I haven't got one of those. Well, it's when the Americans come on and they say, you know, yeah. oh, this was popular or we've got loads of these around and then Dan suddenly like drooling, going, oh. Yeah, I need an, an <laughs> yeah. Apple IIc looks nice. So uh, it can be a bit dangerous, these, but um, I must admit I've been on eBay this week looking for those. But this is what we do every <laughs> month. If you'd like to come and join us for the next one, um, all you got to do is back us on Patreon. And uh, that's the reason that we do Patreon, really, just to keep the show going. And, uh, you know, we have a bit of a community going around it as well. So if you ever, you know, if you enjoyed this show and you want to kind of throw something into the tip jar as it were to help us with the running costs of it and everything else and um, back us on patreon you get invited to the hangout we also do a bonus patrons exclusive podcast for our gold members and above called the retro hour after hours of which we'll be doing a new episode of in the next few weeks you get the normal show ad free get it early some weeks as well but really the reason that you're backing us on patreon is to keep this podcast going each week and uh, you know have the honour of knowing that it's thanks to you that this podcast comes out every single Friday. And let's give a huge thank you to our latest patron who signed up this week, Christopher Evans. Thank you so much for your support. And if you'd like to join him, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Now, it does feel like every week, Joe's like, I've had another Resident Evil story. It's like, are they just on a mission to like remake everything that ever happened with you, Resident you, Evil at the moment? You, you know what? You would think that you know, Resident Evil is like my favourite game series of all time, like classic Resident Evil. You think that I'm like in some sort of forum with them constantly, you know, like a Discord, getting notifications, like, you know, Resident Evil's been mentioned on the internet, but no, just keeps coming up in like, you know, retro game news. Um, but Capcom, yeah, have recently updated a bunch of assets for some of the classic Resident Evil titles. Um, and it's got a lot of people talking, a lot of fans talking, including myself, obviously, because I'm talking about it now. But essentially, on the... Japanese Resident Evil website, which is the Biohazard portal, because obviously it's called Biohazard in Japan. They've updated the history section. Now, I can't navigate the website because I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> There's only a little bit of English. You could have gone to the effort of learning it before <laughs> yeah. this week's show. I could have done. I could have done. But essentially, Resident Evil Code Veronica, Resident Evil, uh, Resident Evil Outbreak and Outbreak File 2 have all had quite a few bits in the history section updated. And when I say bits, they've updated like the posters, the artwork, and also quite a lot of the enemy models. So in in the history section, from what I understand, um, and you get this in a lot of the modern Resident Evil games, you can kind of go in and look at the enemies and like, you know, in like a camera mode and like spin the enemies around and look at all the details and stuff like that. And essentially what people have noticed, what fans have noticed is they've updated this, but with high res HD versions of the enemies and characters from Resident Evil Code Veronica Outbreak and Outbreak File 2. So, you know, and it, it's not just an upscale, it's, it's it's you know, it's not just a touch up, touch up, it's like beyond upscaling, like they've really, really upscaled some of these assets. And Yeah, they've, they've worked on them well, it's not just mm. kind of AI detection, they do yeah. look uh, notably different and they're also yeah. saying that uh, there was this huge leak with uh, nvidia as well yes uh, yeah yeah there was a leak with nvidia uh which i think we touched on a little bit a couple of months ago um last year where there was this leak where you know a lot of these capcom games were meant to be coming in in that leak there was a remake of chrono cross the sequel to chrono trigger and street fighter 6 which have since been announced in the last couple of weeks and in there there was points about resident evil remakes um i.e outbreak and Code Veronica. So 
fans are speculating that they're gearing up to announce, you know, the the remasters of these games, which I'm all for. Um, and I would love an Outbreak remaster because Outbreak was the the multiplayer online one for PlayStation Two, okay. which which didn't get supported in the UK because obviously we didn't have we I don't we didn't really have a widespread PlayStation Online, whereas they did in Japan. Um, and they play Bio uh, Outbreak Resident Evil Outbreak is is classic Resident Evil. It plays like classic Resident Evil, but it was like free player online with you like running around in scenarios. So it didn't have like a long campaign. It had like six levels and each one was a scenario like escape the city, escape the burning city, escape the lab. And, you know, it it didn't have headset support or anything like that. It was a little bit too old school for that. But you could, you know, talk to each other on the D-pad like, you know, come over here and go over there, shoot that. that and, you, you, you know, it, it, it never came to the UK and I always wanted it because like the games came out in the UK, but you could just play them on one player with computer AI and you know, they'd be like blocking doors for you and stuff like that. But you're just like, I wish this was my mates. Like that, that sounds with. ideal. Yeah, kind of for today's modern consoles. And mm-hmm. uh, just even looking at it here, they're saying um, Outbreak also had the ability for uh, players to create their own games. So it could be a bit like a Resident Evil Mario Maker. Yeah, that would be. I'd absolutely love that. <laughs> that would be amazing. And also, what was really cool about Outbreak is if you died on the online mode, your character did become a zombie and <laughs> start running around as a <laughs> nice. zombie. So, you know, and Code Veronica, a lot of people say, is the real Resident Evil 3. You know, that was what Resident Evil 3 should have been. I mean, I love Resident Evil 3, but, you know, it it it, it makes sense with the success of Resident Evil 2 and 3 remake. And, you know, there's still rumours of there being a proper Resident Evil 4 remake. I know we got the Oculus Quest version of it recently, but... It does seem like the natural progression, and these games, I feel like, do need more love because they are like top tier Resident Evil games. So I'm all for it. It's interesting because Code Veronica, I, I've played a bit on the Dreamcast. <clears throat> it was kind of when I first got my Dreamcast. It was a load of you know. I think I just Google like you know the top ten games and burn them all to <clears throat> CD and uh, and played them. And you know, I, I know the original two Resident Evil games more because my brother had them on the PS One. Um, when we were kids but the, i mean code veronica seems to be from looking at the comments on this uh, nintendo life article the one that most people seem to want to remake of yeah it really is kind of like the cult classic resident evil game like everybody's like oh yeah the holy trinity resident evil 1 2 and 3 for the playstation but so many hardcore resident evil fans will be like you need to play uh code veronica as well but for me code veronica is kind of like that turning point where resident evil kind of became a bit action fantastical like you know know, less horror yeah less horror i mean there is obviously still horror elements there because there's zombies and everything but you know even in the opening cinematics like claire redfield the main character is like dodging bullets and you know there's a point where she throws her gun down drops her gun you know because it like hands up but then she drops to the floor and catches the gun and shoots all the bad guys so you know that's kind of where resident evil went you know for about 10 years um but it was kind of like the last fixed camera Resident Evil classic style, you know, with your eight item slots and all the puzzles. Outbreak has got the classic kind of semi-fixed camera and, you know, tank controls and stuff like that, but it wasn't as immersive or in-depth as kind of like the original trilogy because it was more of a an online, you know, you've got an hour to kind of escape the city, um, you know, with your friends online, but obviously in the UK we just got the AI. Um, so I don't know if they'll update that a little bit, but it would be really cool because of, the most recent Resident Evil games have been really fun, but the online elements that they've they've kind of put with them haven't 
been quite what I think fans have been after, uh, which is a completely different rabbit hole we can go down. This, but. this sounds ideal for streaming. Like, I see so many mm. people streaming Resident Evil yeah. speedruns. You know, I can yeah. imagine three different streamers getting together and this this being a huge oh, game on God, Twitch. Yeah, that didn't, didn't, didn't even cross my mind. I watch so many Resident Evil streams at night and stuff like that. Like, when I'm going to sleep, I just live and breathe Resident Evil. But yeah, I didn't even think of that because I follow several different streamers and for them to, be, to have that ability to get together and play a classic Resident Evil game online like that would be absolutely amazing. We should do it, it the three of us. <laughs> Me just screaming at you both. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, but apparently they're going to be updating the Resident Evil portal today at the time of recording this, but I think it's like 2am mm. in Japan now, so maybe by the time the show comes out there will be some Oh, uh, you know what? That always happens. Next week, hopefully, yeah. we'll, be able to, uh, we'll be able to discuss uh, the remakes that have been announced. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll link up that article if you want to check out more. Those character models do look like, you know, they wouldn't have gone to all that effort, you wouldn't think, unless there was some like kind of reason behind it. So uh, mm. fingers mm. crossed that it's some good news. Now, do any of you guys play Wordle? I, I'm dyslexic, so my life is Wordle. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've seen it and I don't understand it. It's just blocks of colours to me. Uh, but I do know it's massively popular. And uh, I think uh, good to anybody that plays it, because I love those kind of old magazine stuff, crosswords and just kind of like simple games with words and stuff. It is kind of the um, epitome of addictive, simplistic games. Because it is, uh, my, my missus actually got me into this. Um, <laughs> actually, the game made me feel very stupid. Because I think um, for about five days, da- I didn't get the word any single day last week. So what you do is it gives you a word every day and gives you a few clues to get the word. And then you kind of get six attempts to guess it. And if you get it wrong, it locks you out for 24 hours. Okay. Uh, but some of the words are like, you know, I, I was looking at the other day, I put it on Twitter and just literally, I think it was trending like, what the hell does this word mean? I can't remember what it meant now. Um, but I mean, because it, it is, it's one of those games where sometimes they're the most popular, aren't they? Just simple, casual gamers, something like this, where you can just, uh, you know, log on quickly on your lunch break or whatever and have a quick game. And look, it makes look sense. At Countdown. Countdown's yeah. still massively huge, you know. But yeah, so this game, it's now been ported to Windows 3.1, a version of it called Windle. So if you ever wanted to play the uh, popular word game on your retro machine, you can now play it on, uh, it's actually Windows 3.1 for work groups. Someone's got it running on here as well. So, I mean, looking at it, it kind of reminds me a bit. I mean, the user interface is that classic Win 3.1 look, you know, stuff that you'd find in the, uh, the Microsoft Entertainment Pack back then, you know, stuff like Solitaire and... Uh, chips challenge and everything as well and uh, there is a website called that dialup.net slash windle where you can download it for free and it is the kind of game that just lends itself well to these retro platforms yeah i've heard it's developed in java as well so like or- originally um you know it's just a, a java site that somebody did well javascript and then uh obviously it's been sold off hasn't it to new york times i saw that everywhere um, yeah. So it's cool that there's... And, and, and they've made it harder, I think. I think since they bought it. I, I could do it before, but now that, that's what it's I'm too academic it for you. <laughs> um, but I do remember these games on Windows 3.1. Now, one thing I've been trying to do is emulate Sim Tower. And Sim right. Tower is one of these games that you actually have to have um, a three-point installation uh, to actually launch the game. So you need to be able to launch up that old Windows environment and then launch sim tower within it and there were a few games like that actually it was a 
quite an interesting thing having that like interface and of course you'd have a minesweeper as well and pipe dream and stuff like that well because this game's so simple i mean there are some comments here i didn't realize there's a version of uh, wordle for the commodore 64 and one for the bbc micro as well apparently so it kind of reminds me of the new uh flappy bird that's what i was going to say it reminds me of that these kind of really simplistic kind of you know games that almost become memes really i suppose you know to get spread that far um, seeing them on retro machines, because, you know, they're, they're graphically not demanding at all, so it makes sense that, you know, it, it's going to be quite a simple job to kind of port these over to old-school hardware. But it is very cool, though, that you can play these kind of addictive games on your old machines. And it's one of the few times I've got my wife, actually, to play the Amiga when uh, when Flappy Bird <laughs> came out on that. You know, and it's, it, again, it's one of those just one-more-go games. You know? I, I kind of love the fact that, you know, we're in a world with, like, you know, you're getting huge gigabytes 50 gig games to download and everything and everyone's <laughs> playing like wordle or something really flappy bird you know something really simple and that will have a lot more users and a lot more players than some of these uh new games and huge consoles yeah so if you want something new to play on your old f386 so that's free to download and i'll put that link along with the rest of the stories in our show notes at the retrohour.com now, let's just take a moment to give a big thank you to, of course, our regular sponsor, our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, this new book here, uh, let me just reach over and get it. Two sets. I'm going to put this down and hopefully it won't uh, break my table in half. Uh, this is Go Straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups, spanning 450 pages. And as soon as I saw this, I thought, Joe could probably read this in an afternoon. I know you're that into this job. I, I absolutely love it. And I, I really, really want my hands on this book. It looks absolutely amazing. So this uh, takes you through, I mean, you know, the games that we all grew up playing, stuff like Double Dragon, mm. Golden mm. Axe, Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, of Streets, course, Streets of, Rage. of Rage. Yeah, Even talking about, you know, it, it kind of goes through the history of that genre. Mm. Over 200 games are featured in here, uh, spanning 37 years, starting with Kung Fu Master uh, back in 1984. That actually was the first game I remember playing on the NES when I was a kid. And that is still one of my favourite games, even though I'm rubbish at Kung Fu Master now. I don't think I didn't even get past the first level last time I played it. I feel like we played it together at one of the Play Play Expo events and we did terrible at it. <laughs> I think we had had about six pints each. Yeah, we had. I'll blame it on that. Um, and then it kind of goes through, you know, all, all those classic 80s and 90s brawlers finishing off with, you know, stuff like the, the latest indie titles like Streets of Rage 4 and Mother Russian Bleeds, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot in here. And of course, it's a bit Matt Book's book, uh, packed full of screenshots, sprites, level max, all lovingly curated and presented to their incredible high standards as well. So if you wanted a real love letter and a real celebration of those classic brawlers, this book is available now. Go straight, the ultimate guide to side-scrolling beat-em-ups. You can get it right now on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And of course, support the podcast by supporting our sponsors. And while we're speaking about supporting the podcast as well, actually, um, I just wanted to take a quick second to uh, give a big thank you to a few people who've left a review on Apple Podcasts, because we do mention this from time to time, but these really do make a big difference to getting us in the podcast charts, don't they? Totally, yeah. Like, Apple's the kind of primary format for podcasts, and having those reviews yep. there are great. And, you know, it just cheers up us up as well, seeing these, like, reviews. There's some really nice stuff on there. Yeah, so I want to say a big thank you to um, Matt1610, um, iMac1, uh, Drewster, uh, Dunga105, um, 
Even Rick D, who, uh, despite the fact he gives a bit of a scathing review, still gives us five stars. So we appreciate that, Rick. So if you'd like to leave us a little review on there, I mean, it helps us uh, get in front of new people as well and get in, into the podcast charts each week. So uh, if you can take a couple of seconds just to give us a nice little review and five stars, that does really help. Um, like, like Ravi said, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I think, do a little rating thing on there now as well. Uh, Stitcher do, you know, reviews. So any, any platform you're on, if you can take a couple of seconds, that would really help us out. Right then, time to talk about the retro magazine revival. Uh, talking about Sega Power magazine, Amiga Addict, Pixel Addict, with our special guests, Paul Monaghan, Dee Mortlock and Ian Griffiths are next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main bit of the show then where we welcome on our special guests as we have got three guests this week and we're going to be talking about the revival of retro gaming magazines. I mean, I was staying at the start of the show, it feels like it's like 1995 or something again. These incredible paper mags I've got on my desk, Sega Powered, Amiga Addict, Pixel Addict, and there's so many more as well. So I thought we'd welcome on you know, a few of the guys that actually work on these titles. So we've got um, Dean Mortlock and we've got Paul Monaghan and Ian Griffiths. Welcome to the show guys nice to have you on thank you very much hello thank you well i mean let's start with you dean i mean it might be quite interesting just to kind of get a bit of background on kind of what you're working on at the moment and what your kind of background is in the magazine industry um yeah sure uh well it's almost exactly 30 years since i started working in games um journalism i started working at paragon um when they were based in trowbridge on a magazine called console excess um i did the first two issues of that then i moved to future to work on Sega Power, and I was there for six years. Um, so I saw it through the kind of transition from being Sega Power into Saturn Power to eventually, obviously, closing it, killing it off. And then I went freelance for a number of years and did other things. And But I've stayed in publishing for the last 30 years, but I haven't always been uh, in games publishing. But um, very briefly, Paul and I have, have been in contact for a few years since uh, we did a, a podcast for Maximum Power Up. And... He, we've always talked about potentially doing another mag, another games mag, but it was only kind of really when Paul started working for Pixel, uh, for Amiga Addict that I saw, oh, okay, there's there's an opportunity here. So it kind of sprang on from there, really. And we had um, Mark, who's obviously Sega Mags, and we had Neil, who was uh, on DC UK. So it kind of seemed the natural fit was to do a Sega mag. Well, this is obviously uh, Sega Powered, which we'll go into in a bit more detail very yeah. soon. But I mean, Paul, you don't yeah. need any introduction, you know, to the uh, the British podcast audience. I'm sure, Paul. <laughs> I mean, you do uh, your own podcast, Maximum Power Up, which you know, if you're into magazines, you do some of the most incredible interviews. You know, all these guys I used to grow up reading, all these editors of magazines and famous journalists as well. I mean, what's kind of your um, where do you come into all this, and why did you decide to really get into this magazine world then? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. That does mean a lot coming from you guys. Um, well, for myself, I've always been into games magazines from being a kid. It was a case of uh, all my paper round money went on uh, magazines at the end of each week. So rather than actually being paid in uh, pounds and pence, it was always a case of probably left with about 20p left of my uh, paper round wage. And uh, I'd already had it on a different, you know, different magazines each week. And my aim as a kid was to try and write on games magazines. That never happened, sadly. Probably being a little bit lazy, in all honesty. But I still had that passion, you know, for reading all about, you know, these uh, fantastic machines back, you know, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, 
obviously spent many years in retail working in game shops and things like that but the main thing was skipping forward lots of years when i got back into retro gaming back in 2012 uh, the main thing for me more than the actual playing of the games was reading the magazines again so after mm. skipping all my magazines back in 1999 apart from some super plays that I did keep uh, a few and then was lucky enough to get a full set of them from a guy in Burnley back in 2004 for 35 quid um sorry pointless fact there um but it was it was a case of uh, I need to get these magazines again and this was just as the price of retro games were rising in 2012 2013 but the magazines weren't because I still managed to get uh, I think I mentioned to you when we saw you in person Dan uh, managed to get the early issues of Me Machine Sega for a penny each, issue one of Edge for a penny, because people weren't really looking at them at the time. And then that, that leads us to, well, over the last few years, where print media has started making a comeback. Uh, there's lots of people roughly my age, you know, like uh, mid-40s and, well, above, who remember all these magazines. And there's obviously been a gap in the market, and that led to obviously doing the maximum power up podcast and my main thing there was to interview as many games writers as possible so the likes of jazz Rignall, neil west um you know uh steve jarrett and just the list goes on you know uh names that we all remember you know um and then as dean mentioned uh had him on the show back in 2017 when we were discussing sega power and um we met up in person uh, for my 40th, a trip to Bath. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do for my 40th. I wanted to go down and see the old future publishing offices. Uh, my wife didn't come with me, which my friends thought was a bit strange. Uh, but anyway, I had a great time, uh, obviously, meeting up with a few <laughs> ex-games journalists and friends. And uh, yeah, um, that's when we started knocking about the idea of a games magazine. A year later, I spoke to Jonah, editor of uh, Amiga Addict, who liked my passion for when I spoke about magazines and started writing a little bit for that. And then um, myself and Dean and, like I say, Mark and Neil, we started work on a Sega Powered probably last summer, I think it was, when the first uh, ideas really started you know, to come together. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only person who got rid of all my gaming mags and then started buying them all back again. I'm sure I've actually got some that, that are mine that people have dragged out of the skip and sold back to me in my room now. Actually. Oh, I've got a half a dance here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gave most of mine to Ravi, then brought them back, actually. Um, and obviously, Ian, I mean, you've become the uh, deputy editor of Amiga Addict magazine recently as well. And what was kind of your background with magazines then, and how did you lead to this point then? So, um, I mean, I used to read a lot of uh, uh, magazines back in the uh, the 8-bit kind of Spectrum era and, uh, and the 16-bit Amiga era um, through to the PC. Um, and then I kind of stopped, really. But... Um, so I've I've got a fair bit of of sort of a consumer background with uh, magazines, but I've I've never been in uh, in publishing myself or anything like that. But um, our editor uh, Jonah Naylor he uh, he approached me uh, a couple of years ago now, say, asking whether I'd like to get involved uh, with the magazine, whether I'd like to uh, write a couple of articles, do a bit of proofreading. So I was happy to do that. Um, obviously, as these things always go, I joined the magazine and then. Did, grabbing myself a much larger role than I initially intended. But that's the way these things tend to go. I mean, Jonah had been subscribed to um, the German magazine, Amiga Future, for for quite a few years uh, before he started thinking about this. And, and he, he first had the idea of Amiga Addict uh, a good few years, actually, before 
we even got together and started uh, putting it together. But um, his his feel was, and, and, and something that's been expressed to us by a, a few other people that have been uh, involved, was that they, they like the the um, the type of content you get in things like Amiga Future, but it doesn't have that kind of British tone. We 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 uh, understand and miss from um, those heady years in the nineties when you'd get that real kind of uh, not not so much lab culture, but but definitely a, a something that is uniquely British uh, to feel feel to it, rather than something that's been translated from uh, a different kind of language. So. He said. He said to me when he, when his uh, second child came along, he thought he's, 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 this is going to be his only chance to actually, <laughs> actually uh, give this a go. So he's really driven it through, and I give him all the credit for that. Uh, but yeah, I've been I've been on board since uh, since day one, and and now I'm doing the uh, deputy editor role, and it's all been going pretty well, to be honest. Well, I'm going to ask a question of all of you guys, and uh, first we'll start with Ian. Actually, uh, what was your favourite gaming magazine. So what was the one that you would actually save up for or, or two of them and have your dream kind of magazine and spend all your pocket money on it? So, I mean, I started uh, with Amiga magazines with Amiga Action, um, which I think is controversial to some people because I think it's got uh, a mixed reception in the uh, in, in the community. But I I had that I, I, from before I even got my Amiga. I was... Back in the day, when you'd buy the magazines and you'd just get yourself excited as a uh, as a somebody in your uh, in your early teens, just getting getting that uh, hype up for for getting your machine, uh, I had and I bought that for quite a long time. But but Amiga format is really where it, it really uh, the the real love of the magazines kind of honed into view because that that had that real professional style and it covered just everything from games to uh, to hardware and everything like that. Well, what about you, Dean, as well? I know you were working on them, but you must have uh, wanted to purchase them as well. Yeah, well, um, when I started computing, it was kind of with the spectrum. So it was kind of things like Crash and your Sinclair. Um, and then um, when I had a My Amiga, it was kind of, I was more of a Amiga gamer, really. Um, so it was kind of things like Amiga Power, the one. And then Mega, I was always a massive fan of Mega. I thought Mega was a great mag. Uh, Super Play was fantastic. Total was great. They all kind of captured exactly what they were, wanted to do, and they targeted the audience perfectly. I think um, Me Machine Sega. I mean, I've got to be honest. I think there's a um, there's a lot I liked about what they did, and they kind of again they just managed to create the perfect magazine for the audience they were going for. I I feel better you, now. Uh, I feel better now answering. Seeing Dean's listed off a, a few because I was like going, God, just one. Um, Obviously, the main one for me is always going to be Super Play. Obviously, being a uh, Super Nintendo owner as a teenager, uh, Super Play, I loved the style. We always talk about the Will Overton artwork um, so much that for one time I did meet him in person. Uh, I think I just wouldn't leave him alone for most of the afternoon at a games event. But then uh, that's one that stands out. Then another one which doesn't get loads of love is still Games X because it didn't last for that long done by Europress. But that only lasted 48 weekly issues before it uh, ended. But that was, I was, what, only 11 or 12 when that magazine uh, ran. And the idea of a weekly games magazine, you know, with the official charts and everything was uh, was quite interesting, you know. And then the other one is something that I did a recent feature for um, Amiga Addict, and that was Zero. And I think anyone who 
enjoyed like your Sinclair um, when you moved on to your other 16-bit era, you know, your STO and Amiga. Uh, Zero was just one hell of a magazine, you know, the writing talent they had, the humour. Uh, this is something that I've been fortunate enough to speak to a couple of guests uh, for Maximum Power Up uh, to discuss their time on Zero and also, like I say, uh, to do uh, a good few pages writing about it. It's just it's such a good magazine and then I don't think it gets as much love as other ones. You know, there's always things like Amiga Format always gets uh, mentioned, which, you know, for good reason. But Zero never mm. seems to be at the top of anyone's list, you know. But those are, those are probably my top three. And then later, when we start recording, I'll go, I can't believe you didn't mention this. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, a podcast reaches a global audience. But I think, you know, in that kind of pre-internet era, magazines were very localised. I mean, you know, you, you had a completely different audience and a completely different style and different people that featured in magazines in the UK versus America, for example. And we had, you know, you could say local celebrities. I mean, you know, we mentioned a few of them before, like, you know, Jazz Rignall and, you know, Steve Jarrett and guys like Stuart Campbell, you know, Liver Mahatim. They were well known back in the day. I mean, what about you, Dean? You know, before you got into writing, when you're reading, you know, these magazines like Crash and stuff, were there any kind of uh, writers that you looked up to and did you have any favourites? Um, yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, there was, um, I remember Gary Penn being quite a prominent figure in, in a lot of them. Um, Chris Anderson, obviously, was who obviously went on to do Set Up Future was, was on it at that point. You know, Jazz, I didn't know he was on Crash, but I remember the name cropping up. Um, Richard Eddy was one guy that I remember seeing quite a bit of in the mags. And of course, when I started on Sega Power, he was uh, he worked in marketing for, for Codemasters for a number of years. So um, I got to meet him. That's quite quite bizarre. And, odd, and another guy from Yule Sinclair, I used to read a lot of, is, was somebody called Phil South, um, who actually contacted me recently about writing for Sega Power. So that was quite weird because I was like, oh my God, I used to read you. You know, so I had a bit of a kind of fan, fanboy moment. But that was quite, that was quite bizarre. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's lots of really great writers then, and, and you know, there's a lot of them still working and still writing. It's interesting because sometimes, you know, without even reading the byline of who wrote it, you could you could tell sometimes you'd be like, oh, I bet this is one of their articles. You turn back and you'd be like, yep. You kind of got to know their style, didn't you, when you read them every month? Absolutely, and that's something we we're kind of we're kind to promote, keen to promote in in Sega Power because we're all very different and we all have our own style. I mean, Neil's style is very different to mine and to, to Neil's and Mark's. So we really want to kind of push that. So people eventually get used to the tone and then they get used to saying, oh, well, you know, that game's been reviewed by Mark and I know he likes that type of game. So blah, blah, blah. So that's what we want to obviously promote, which is very much kind of the mag feel. I know you're friends with most of them now, Paul. I mean, I don't want to you know embarrass you or anything. Was there anyone who's kind of your hero when you were growing up? Um, well, like you said, I've you know, made friends with quite a few uh, people that I used to read, uh, which it still blows my mind. I've still got a few people that sadly have not been able to quite, you know, talk about getting on uh, in the past. So myself and Dean, obviously, we've mentioned um, Andy Dyer, you know, from his days on Total and Mega. You know, there's uh, obviously the late Jason Brooks, uh you know, he spent time on Superplay, then Edge. Uh, again, people like Neil West, you know, these are, as you just touched on, some of these went on to go and, you know, work in America on American magazines. You know, it's it's great to see how their careers sort of progressed and also how their styles had to change as well because, you know, some of these people like, um, like Gary Witter, I've just come to him, but like he obviously, he's uh, done extremely well since uh, writing on games magazines, you know, and... Um, you think about it and like he was saying his writing style had to change so much when he went working on like you know the american ones compared to 
uh, the, the British ones, you know, the language used and everything like that and how people viewed certain uh, genres. So, like I say, the key ones are, you know, I've just mentioned, but um, I think everyone had their own styles, like uh, Dean just said. I think that's like, one of the key things. And already, I mean, I, I keep joking, like in our, um, you know, chat group chat with uh, Dean and the guys, you know, anytime it's a racing game, there's probably only about three or four racing games I like at all. So, you know, when, when we have to discuss and give another opinion for the racing ones, it's usually me going, I suppose it's all right, you know, and like, I don't know, the rest of them will absolutely love it, you know, but I'm sure we'll get to, you know, viewpoints like that at some point. Well, um, back in the days, you know, in the 90s, there would be some controversies going around because I'd always try and get the edge. Uh, what, what controversies do you remember, Paul, that really stood out for you? I'm just trying to think, really, because back then it's obviously trying to get all the... Um, exclusives and everything some stories have been shared with me like off air which uh, I, I've, I've stuck to my you know um code as to put it and never shared them but i think you know when you see things like well ian mentioned amiga action before and when you have a look at say when they gave things like uh, rise of the robots on amiga you know 90 odd percent and every single magazine must have rated it 30% or lower, you know, you sort of wonder what's going on there, you know, and then you do sometimes like uh, hear that obviously some publishers will try and say, would you be a bit more favorable? Uh, you know, I'm not saying that that happened, you know, people actually took up on it, but it's just, uh, those are the big things that stood out for me. You know, like when, when one magazine gives a game that looks a bit, you know, suspect, such a high score and everyone else is unanimous in slating it it does make you wonder, you know, um, I remember once speaking to, um, Dave Perry, I know you guys spoke to him as well, but like he was on about trying to get exclusives for, I think he said Mortal Kombat 2, for, it may have been Sega Pro, and he just said how underhand it was, you know, to try and get in, um, by, you know, not lying about deadlines, but, you know, I've got like a week's lead on here and, you know, having to try and, get that scoop that little bit quicker or you know this i'm sure like uh dean will have heard things but you know when sometimes the reviewing games that are not fully complete you know certain titles and that's why a lot of mags back then it'd be like going we will only review mag uh, review games which are fully 100 complete you know so at the end of the day people who are you know mainly kids and teenagers back then you're spending what 45 quid a game you know, for consoles and even on something like Amiga, it's still £30 if you were buying Amiga games. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's you know, quite a bit of pocket money back then or, you know, a little bit of your wage. So you wanted to make sure you were buying something good. So I think that comes back to knowing which writers you could trust and also agree with, you know, their taste in games. Obviously, Dean, you're right in the middle of that, you know, at Sega Power, for example. I mean, do, do you remember any kind of examples of... Uh you know, like software companies, did they kind of do that to get favourable reviews or any kind of pressure they put on? Was there anything like that that sticks in your memory? Um, the usual one was, because um, we, 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 talk, we talk a lot about review scores in, in Sega Powered, because obviously we, we have a lot less, uh, we have to be a lot, there's, there's, we have not PR people breathing down our, our necks so much, but the way it used to work was um, they wanted at least 80% or above for a review because that was, they worked out the cutoff point with um buyers if anything below 80 percent 
used to turn people off. Even if it's 78, they'd be like, oh. if it was 80 or 81, psychologically, they thought it was a, a much better game. Um, so they'd always say, well, you know, we want 80%. So very often what would happen is, um, in a similar way that some films aren't press screened because they're not particularly good. Um, <laughs> if a game's a bit iffy, they'll say, oh, well, you know, the review code isn't ready. And you know damn well it is because they have to send it off to be to be mastered. And it has to be, go, for, you know, approval process and all that kind of thing. So you know it's being done. But you say, oh, yeah, well, we'll get it to you. And when's your deadline? Oh, yeah, we might not get you in time. So they'll deliberately kind of slow things down so you didn't get it in time. And you'd have to review it after it was out in the shops. Or they would say, you know, well, we want 80%. If you're going to review this and you're going to be one of the first, then we, we, we need this sort of score. And if you said, well, no, you know, we can't do that, then um, they'll say, oh, well, you know, okay, well, we'll have to leave it then. And, and whether or not that's underhand, I don't know. But we always kind of, we always very firm and stuck to our guns in every aspect because it's just, if you start going down that route, and I don't, I, to be honest, I don't, I know a couple of games when I've looked at it, I thought, oh, I'm not sure about that. But I, I would never presume that that's what they did. Um, but once you once you do start going down the road, people aren't stupid and they do go, well, hold on, that's not a such and such a percentage, that's more like that. And you lose your, if you lose the confidence of your, of your readers and your, the people buying the mag, then you're done for, really. Yeah, I think, you know, when we were talking to Steve Jarrett, he mentioned something about, um, you know, when it was Edge magazine, they give a game a bad review and then the uh, the publisher pulled all their advertising for a couple of months, yeah. you know, in, in rebellion and then kind of came around a couple of months later. But I guess it, it must have been a bit of a kind of balancing act commercially but also keeping the integrity as well sometimes. Well it, well, it was, but also in those days before the internet, if you wanted to publicise a game, there was only really one way to do it. So it was kind of a, a very much a, a mutual collaborative thing. It's because the software companies needed the magazines as, as much as anything else to promote their titles. So advertising was a lot more of an essential thing then. Did you hear, um, it just reminded me, like what Dean was just saying about, um, and, and yourself, about advertising, uh, you know, being pulled because... Like one of the stories that was told to me was um, Tim Ponting when he was on um, PC Zone, and if he had like you know a disagreement over um, I can't remember if it was something like Command and Conquer, some big title, and uh, Virgin threatened to you know pull the advertising, and the story and this made it into um, the interview that I, I did with him because I kept it in because I was like my God what a story this is, and because this disagreement went on with Virgin and PC Zone, he sent an axe to the main <laughs> guy at Virgin uh, by courier and saying, don't you think it's time to bury this? And uh, it was like, oh my God, is it bury the hatchet? And I was just like in awe of this story, you know, uh, that Tim Ponton had just told me, I thought, this is amazing. So um, yeah, I don't, I'd, I'd like to think not everything went that uh, crazy. You know, that's the thing. We're thinking about you know controversies in magazines. I mean, Ravi mentioned one before we recorded today. I, mean, I always remember the uh, you know cannon fodder um, mm. on the front cover of Amiga oh, Power. Man. You know, with a poppy yeah. and that that making. I think it was in like the Sun or something, wasn't um, it? Sun Daily Mail and all those other favourites. Again, I think we just put it down as like disrespectful or something because obviously the the magazines will have picked up on it. You know, because again, this was around the time when you're thinking like what. 93, well, the, the, 94, where it was any publicity yeah. against games, if it was bad publicity, it would be all over it. You know, Nintendo uh, causes epilepsy, you know, things like that. And the magazines such as Games Master, Total, whoever, would always comment and just go, well, this national newspaper has reported this. You know, we know that our readers are sensible, you know, and um, it's just like, you know, the video nasties craze of uh, the 80s. You know, if you have a look at what's uh, 
I can't believe I say this new and hip. Um, and you know, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Look, I'm 42. I promise you I'm not 60 old. <laughs> you know, I'm just, but yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things, sadly, you know, there always seems to be that public enemy number one and games like cannon fodder, because, you know, we were saying, Oh, it's a bit, you know, damning against the war veterans and things like that. And, you know, you've spoke to so many people from sensible and, you know, they, they've said otherwise. Well, of course, have, um, sorry, I was going to jump in quickly. Um, right. if, you, if you remember in the issue, the, the, the problem wasn't so much of the cover, which wasn't completely disrespectful, is that Stuart Campbell wrote, old soldiers, I wish them all dead. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what upset them. Because <laughs> um, if, you, if you remember on Amiga Power, they all had a little Stuart says, you know, Cam says, and Stuart says, old soldiers, I wish them all dead. And of course... I, I, predictably, there was not raw, and the, the, I, I remember because I, um, I, I was working at Future, I think at the time then, and the the the, the, the tabloids were literally banging down the door of um, the, uh, the Amiga Power office trying to get in, and they wouldn't open the door to them. They kept Stuart locked in until they went away. Of course, um, Team Seventeen and Amiga Power went on to have a bit of a, a bit of a disagreement themselves over like review scores and things like that. And it, it makes you wonder whether that happening earlier on around uh, around cannon fodder to kind of help to spark those uh those sort of feelings of discord kind of thing yeah quite possibly yeah um dean um do you want to share the uh, we can always just not do oh, but God. you know the uh the sega power uh being banned by well pizza hut upsetting pizza hut wasn't it with the uh... oh god oh god that was that was um oh that, 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 that basically um the publisher very cleverly worked out that if we dumped a load of copies of Sega Power at Pizza Hut um, on the last issue of our ABC, then that sort of uh, boosted the figures a little bit. So basically what would happen was if kids went into any of the Pizza Hut restaurants, they were given a copy of Sega Power to read as they were having their meal. So um, apparently that still counted as, an a- as towards the ABC, so yeah, they were quite happy. Anyway, the, the, the language wasn't wasn't risky that at all really in Sega Power, but there was, there was some throwaway line about that somebody had written, which was kind of jokey. Um, about some uh, some girl's bikini falling off, and apparently the kids were giggling, and the mum read it and got upset and uh, complained and complained to the papers, and then it was in the I think it was the Today newspaper, which was obviously a, a paper from a while back, and yeah, we were we were hauled over the coals for that, but yeah, it was it was it was kind of it was it was very odd, but um, I think the, the the headline was Pizza Hut hands out sex tales to teenagers. Um, which is and you know exactly what that every teenager then's like I want to read that magazine yeah. <laughs> the ABC's uh, went through the roof yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was um, yeah it's quite bizarre really but. well magazines kind of went a bit out of trend and do you think the internet was was to blame for a lot of this Ian definitely I mean I mean some of the things we've had to consider from a from that perspective in Amiga Addict is a lot of the focus for magazines back in the nineties would be I've got to be first, got to get the exclusive. That's that's where you'd get some of these uh reviews of games that weren't quite finished getting in there and all that kind of stuff. And obviously print magazines nowadays, you've got no chance of competing against uh, the internet. You can't you can't expect to. You might get the odd exclusive just because no one knows, but you're never gonna beat someone just uh typing up a tweet or a or a blog or uh, or anything to getting it onto the uh onto onto the internet so definitely that immediacy immediacy of information it was uh definitely uh probably didn't help magazines definitely media newspapers all those sorts of things became 
less of a focus for people because they could get their information elsewhere and potentially get their information from people who will uh, might agree with them more than, than maybe a, a magazine reviewer or an editorial writer might do as well. So, so yeah, definitely the internet's going to have had a massive effect. I mean, you, you can definitely see the, uh, the, the parallels between when the internet was starting to get big in the mid nineties and, uh, and, and when uh, magazines uh, went out of fashion, but obviously a lot of games magazines will follow the life cycles of uh, the platform they're supporting as well. So, a lot of the magazines we know and love from back in the day will will have gone along those sorts of life cycles. But equally, you can say, well, you're not seeing a new like uh, Xbox Series X magazine necessarily, or they're, they're not filling the shelves anymore. Certainly, and I guess the need for demo discs and cover CDs as well was a mm. was a Absolutely. was a huge thing. Um, Dean, you were working in the industry. Did you kind of see the rise of the internet and see how it affected and changed stuff? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, Ian, Ian was completely right. That's exactly what happened. I mean, when, when the internet started off and, and the games uh, news sites started popping up, I mean, generally they were just kind of run by people in their in their bedroom. But obviously the more money that was available uh, for these sites, they were able to hire more professional writers and professional designers. So it wasn't long before editorially they were competing with you know, the better mags. So you know, as soon as people realised they can get this information weeks earlier online, and that kind of made a lot of what the magazines did redundant, I think. I mean, were you there at the time when FutureNet was originally been set up? That was about 95, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was set up by Andy. Well, one of the, one of the team was Andy Smith, the, the, the Sega Power Editor that, that I started with. And I think, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it was kind of small steps and all that. And I think nobody really knew what to do with the internet um, because not everybody, not many people had access and the access was kind of intermittent and we were all on dial up then. It was all a bit patchy. Obviously, they had to have a presence online, but it was a bit kind of not really sure what they were doing, kind of second C, really. But um, yeah, I remember then it was generally just the dump a few kind of uh, old articles online, wouldn't they, from like a few months back? But that's it, and you couldn't really do many screenshots because you, you'd sit there and watch the lines load, wouldn't you? And, and it would take about a minute to load anything remotely resembling something you could you could watch um, or at least look at. So um, it was mainly editorial, I think. But but so then the magazine obviously was still kind of. You know, still supreme, but as soon as broadband came along, and obviously things sped up. Then it was like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of that's kind of, that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think when you started getting uh, online video being coming a, a yeah. new thing, you can actually see these games rather than just have to look at screenshots and imagine yeah. how they move um, or, or play a demo, for example. That's going to make a big difference um, to to what people's expectations are. Well, you saw that massive change, didn't you? Like mid nineties. You know, like you said, quite a few uh, magazines on the shelves, but so many were starting to get a bit thinner. And like you just said, that when broadband came along, you know, you didn't need the demo discs. That just seemed to be like, I think we still kept him for the early days of official like PlayStation 3 magazine. But then we soon got rid of them, you know, because like you say, you just go on to playstation store or whatever and just download a demo there. And, uh, you know, eventually you sort of get, conditioned to not expect it after god knows how many years of you know demo discs demo discs you know going back to like say those amiga and st days you know that's how they obviously sold the games and like you say now you just go onto a website and all the pictures are there video and everything you know it's it's just constant so i think that's why when you are doing a magazine now it's trying to do things different you know, because it's not going to be the same as, 
you know, uh, or then you look at ways to obviously be better than, you know, as well. But I'm sure we'll get onto that. Well, since the kind of days of tapes, people would uh, survive off those demo discs. Oh, yeah. Cover discs. Mm. You know, they were a huge resource. And uh, Ian, I know um, Amiga Addict have actually trying to release a, a yeah. few cover discs, which is interesting in uh, today's age. It was a challenge because obviously a lot of the expectations people have for, for magazines like uh, uh, Amiga Addict and, and Sega Powered is... is um, is influenced by people's experience of the magazines back in the day. So they, they obviously they want to see you push new boundaries, but they also want to get the nostalgia from what they had back in the day. So the the articles and the the features that you get back in the day, you know, classifieds and letters pages and all those kinds of things are things people want to see. Uh, and one of those things is the is the cover discs. Now, obviously, if you're doing an Amiga magazine, then you know, sourcing a thousand plus floppy disks in modern age is basically impossible. So it, it's doable, but it would probably cost more than the production of the magazine itself. And plus, magazines back in the day had had a dedicated cover disk editor, and they they'd spend their time sourcing the licenses and sourcing the material to put on the disks. Um, and obviously. I, with all of us, do, well, most of us working uh, part time on the magazine, <laughs> just to have time for that kind of thing. But we've managed, managed to get a nice middle ground in that we provide a download, which is effectively a, a virtual disc. So people that, that know the Amiga um, format, no pun intended, know that the, you can you can get a, a basically a virtual disc format. So we we can provide that file for download from our website, but then. Um, and it, this was Jonah's idea. Uh, we go that extra step, and we get we print their labels, so people can actually take that that uh, virtual disc, put it onto a, a real physical floppy disk. That may, maybe maybe overwriting an old magazine floppy disk that they had from back in the day, uh, and, and and then they can stick their uh, their new label over the top. Um, and people seem to really like that. That's, that's, that's been going pretty well because we we can track the downloads, and people are definitely. Uh, Definitely downloading those uh, cover discs and enjoying them. It, it is nice to see you guys doing a cover disc, actually, because, I mean, that was a big part of it back then. I mean, I've got memories yeah. of, you know, also yeah. Christmas issues of, like, stuff like Amiga Format seem to have the most incredible oh, yeah. cover discs. I remember, like, getting Lemmings mm. 2 demo on there for the first time, and there was Canon Soccer, which was a great little Christmas demo of uh, Canon Fodder and Sensible Soccer. I mean, have, you, have you got any kind of favourite cover discs that stick in your mind, Paul? Well, you just mentioned uh, the Canon Soccer then, and... Uh, when a cover disc does it right, um, like Ravi said, sometimes you would just be getting hours and hours of, you know, fun from it. And sometimes it just seemed to be, you know, like a couple of PD games, you know, public domain things. Again, mentioning um, Amiga Action, for example, uh, I think they were the first Amiga magazine to have the four discs on the cover. And uh, they had to have slightly thicker paper because obviously if it had been the same thickness of the uh, cover, it just ripped, you know, for the sheer weight of four uh, cover discs. But um, that I've wrote about for uh, Amiga Addict in the past, you know, those uh, cover disc wars were absolutely fantastic, you know, for readers. Um, it must have been horrible for the magazine staff to go, okay, we've got two cover discs, you know, well done, guys. Oh, no, Amiga Power, I've got three now. Okay, 
can we do four then? You know, and before you know it, it's just like a magazine of discs. But some of them were so... Do you remember as well they used to compress them and you needed about like seven blank floppies sometimes to archive them all? Yes, now, (laughs) a lot more in my ST owning days. And again, as, um, as we've established even this evening, my technical skills aren't always the best. So when you're reading like uh, the disc pages of, say, ST format or ST action, and you're just going, okay, I've got to do this, and I need a blank disc to do that. And I'm just, you know, I was only 10 or 11 at the time with the ST, and I'm going, this, is, this just seems so long-winded. Why can't I just put in disc play game, you know? Yeah, it's just, I think... Moving forward a few years, things like the uh, the PlayStation uh, cover discs, you know, official PlayStation magazine, they had the um, Net, uh, Netuzori, um demos, well, games that people have made as well. Absolutely fantastic. I remember things like Resident Evil 2 demo, um, and you'd just be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, it was still like such a magical time, you know, and uh, I think we just pulled out all the stops. It became a proper cover disc war, you know, for quite a few years. Well, you know, Dean, obviously working on Sega Power, which, you know, for, I guess, the early part of it was really focused on the Mega Drive, which was mostly a cartridge-based machine. I remember they did, like, a one-off Mega CD cover mount on Sega Power. I mean, was there ever yeah. any... Did you do, like, Saturn stuff? Or what was kind of your memory of doing any cover-mounted stuff? Um, well, we when we um, when we rebranded the magazine as, as Saturn Power, um, I wanted to do a covered disc on every issue. And part of the and, the and the publisher said, okay, well, yeah, you can do that, but get me a year's worth of discs all sorted out and you can do it. So I did that. I got a year's worth of third-party uh, discs sorted out and took it to the publisher and said, okay, well, these are all confirmed. This is what we got for each month. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, um, between that point and the first couple of issues coming out, uh, the Saturn died horrendously. So basically all those third-party games that were agreed to go on suddenly became, suddenly cancelled. Um, so we started okay. We had a, um, I think one issue, we had a core uh, demo disc with a few titles on it. Then we had a, um, a Gremlin one with a few. Then we did uh, a music one because one dropped out and then eventually we had Wipeout. And then that was it, really. But, you know, we all, it, the idea was there and the kind of support was there initially. But um, I think we, were, we weren't predicting the, the sat to die quite as quickly as it did we always knew it was going to be kind of second fiddle to the the playstation but i think we kind of secretly hoped that it would be like the sort of xbox and playstation you know that one would be slightly above the other one but it would all be okay in the end but obviously it wasn't sadly not well i mean let's talk about the um the new magazines then so um obviously dean you're working on amiga powered um, and I know, Paul, you're kind of, you straddle both Amiga Addict and Sega Powered. You've got, you know, your feet in both kind of camps there. And Ian, like we mentioned, yeah. you're the deputy editor on Amiga Addict. I mean, so let's just kind of, um, you might be a good place to start actually with this, um, Paul. Give me the kind of uh, synopsis on both of these magazines for people that haven't read them before. Um, okay. I'm going to end up saying the usual thing, which also just makes Dean roll his eyes. Um, but the, the idea, what I've, uh, what I've also said to Jonah as well, um, my, my thinking has always been, we started magazines because both scenes are strong currently for the Amiga and also things like the Sega Dreamcast. This is probably uh, the most fruitful era gaming-wise, um, publicity-wise and things like that. So I always say it's like we, we cover the past, present and future of, well, Amiga and also Sega because 
for a magazine to survive, you obviously need to still be having things to cover. You know, um, using say Retro Gamer quickly as an example, that's never going to run out of things to cover because you know every few years something else becomes classed as retro or vintage or however you want to see it. But I think like when it comes say um, using um, Sega at the moment so you think you've got over 30 years of games to look back on you know so obviously we cover things like mass system we have um in issue two uh i look back at some really rare uh sega hardware and then when you think you know mega drive uh, saturn dreamcast and you think it's 20 years since um the dreamcast was you know dropped by uh, by sega you know so it's like a retro machine but then You've always had um, some people, you know, making games to it, doing ports and things. But, you know, at the moment, we're talking like getting on for a dozen different games, you know, being worked on, released. Some are ports, some are original games. Uh, Again, you've got things like um, Mega Drive games being worked on as well. Going over to uh, the Amiga, uh, again, uh, Ian will totally agree with me on this, but the amount of, and yourself, Ravi, the amount of games that are coming out uh, and being reworked on the Amiga, you know, uh, with this Scorpion mm. engine is absolutely amazing. I mean, you guys have mentioned, you know, uh, Final Fights being redone. You've got um, a couple of other scrolling beat-em-ups. You've had Metal Gear uh, being ported to the Amiga. And I, I keep saying to, like, you know, uh, both teams, it's like, it, it's almost like those late days for the Amiga, it's almost like 1996-97. When I go through my Amiga magazines from that period and say there's, what, five or six reviews, we're getting close to that again. The amount of things that are in work in progress is crazy, you know. So you think you've got all this to cover. You know, with with the um, A500 Mini, you know, you're going to see that like in uh, Game, Argos, whatever. I'm trying to make it sound like an advert, but you know, it's it's mad to show that, you know, there's, there's some people that are just going to say, wow, there's, you know, some, well, not exactly Amiga hardware, but, you know, the Amiga name uh, is it's going to be back on the high street for, you know, well, who knows how long. But, yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. It really is. And I would say it's the strongest these scenes have been for quite some years, hence now obviously wanting to write about them. And, uh Again, have that bit of a look back. You know, it's uh, it's exciting times. Well, I think I think um, for for us as the people in this in this uh, on this podcast that are probably deep in the community and understand everything that's uh, uh, coming out. For a lot of people that only have a passing glance at uh, these these sorts of uh, uh, scenes, they just uh, I, I'm I've lost track of the number of times someone's come up to me and said, I had no idea people were still making Amiga games anymore or people were still making Amiga hardware. And that's where these magazines can really uh, really benefit uh, people that might not be on social media all hours of the day or, uh, or, or following fan sites and things like that, uh, just to get a view of, uh, of what's out there and what's coming up. Well, the internet kind of seemed to damage magazines, but it's absolutely helped magazines at the moment because I know um, we've been working collaboratively online ian and paul um yeah for the last 10 issues Mm. so um what 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 tools have been absolutely essential in the production of a magazine i mean discord is a big one for us um but really any any kind of uh platform where you can just uh um get together with people and and talk things out i mean we've been saying since issue one we need to 
we need to get into a regular sort of voice chat or something on Discord, and we still, we still haven't managed to do it because uh, <laughs> actually producing content tends to come first. But um, it's but it just being able to set up a few private channels with just the people that you want to uh, uh, talk to uh, and get the, that instant response from people uh, really helps because obviously producing a magazine traditionally everyone's sat together in an office they can just lean across and uh, and ask a question or uh, or or push a bit of content back to someone and you we just don't have the the options for that because i mean well in in the pandemic we actually hadn't physically met up no. so um, you know it was all <laughs> all kind of done online and uh, i think google docs is also yeah an definitely absolutely definitely fabulous is. resource what uh, dean what are you using to kind of help produce a magazine online well we 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 will talk on we've got like a facebook group chat for the four of us and it was something we set up uh at the start just for a kind of way for us all to talk and uh, and that's just it we've just that's all we've kept um we're on discord as well that was something that we set up relatively recently when we had the time to kind of do it because it's obviously it's just a nice way that if people kind of want to kind of chat to us they know that if they kind of ask us a question or they want to have a chat, we usually one of us will usually get back to them within a kind of half an hour. So it's it's it's, it's sort of straddling both worlds really, and creating a print, creating an analog product in a digital age because you kind of you can use the internet for positive things and use it to kind of help the magazine uh, progress. Really, I mean things like marketing a bit. I mean something that we would never be able to do afford to do traditionally, whereas nowadays. You know, with things like Kickstarter and Twitter and Facebook, you can obviously promote things a lot easier and get the word out. And as well, I think that's great, the fact that you, you're so accessible as well, because I remember, you know, mm. reading Amiga Format, you know, in, in the early 90s, and they'd be like, you know, we'll open the phone lines on Tuesday morning if you want to call and ask yeah. something, but that's it. And <laughs> But now you can contact you on Discord, like you said, get a reply in half an hour. It's, uh, you know, I yeah. guess it makes it a lot more friendly for, it, for readers. It's a blessing and a curse, let me, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, while we're talking about the production, I've got to ask this, Ian, because, um, you know, Amiga Addict, I've got the latest copy in front of me here. Glossy cover. It's full colour. You know, it looks beautiful. It's got, you know, that real professional look. You mad lads actually put all this together on an Amiga. We did. We did. How, how does I mean, this work? I think, I mean, Jonah has a uh, an X5000, which is kind of a, a sort of later day uh, next-gen kind of Amiga. Uh, and he initially put together the first, first magazine on... Uh, page stream which is an amiga dtp program and uh we're probably not 100 percent on amiga anymore just because we've got more team members and we we're uh, we've got to produce things quicker <laughs> for the best, best in the world moving files between uh, amiga and pc and off the internet and all those sorts of things it's a uh, it's hard work but uh but yeah i mean there's definitely there's still parts of the magazine we we do uh, completely on the Amiga. Uh, it's something we wanted to try and keep as much as we could because, you know, it, it's just demonstrating the power of the platform, isn't it, really? So. It, but even back then, I mean, I've seen videos of Futures offices. They use Macs for everything. You know, even when yeah. the Amiga's heyday, no one <laughs> used it to make a magazine. So <laughs> very ambitious. Enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what about for you, Dean? I mean, I'm looking here then. So I've got Sega Powered Issue 1 and 2. Um, yeah. So And this looks, I mean, it, it is something that, you know, it's the quality of anything you'd oh. see in WH Smith or something like that. It's incredible. You know, the paper quality oh, feels gorgeous as well. And uh, what's kind of the process of putting this together then? And does it kind of feel a bit like being back in the saddle after all this time, you know, editing a Sega mag again? Do you know what? It feels lovely. I mean, I've, I've done some really good jobs over the last 20 or so years, but doing something like this, it's just, 
Um, yes, it's, it's gorgeous. It's really lovely. It just feels like the last 20 years have just disappeared, really. Um, it's, my, it's my midlife crisis, a little bit older. Um, but yeah, we do it all on, we do it all on Macs. Um, we do it all with um, InDesign. So um, just before this, for about six or seven years, I produced um, local free uh, magazines that went around the community, sort of the thing that you get through the door. Um, so that were free and, and funded by advertising. So kind of myself and my partner, who's a graphic designer, we kind of put them together ourselves. So we kind of had that set up in place and, and the structure. So we went, well, this, is a, this is a bigger magazine, obviously. Um, and so the workload's increased, but it's, this, the structure's still kind of the same. So um, my partner, Kate, handles a lot of the design. I do some of the pages that I can do, but all the kind of the stuff that looks really nice at the features, uh, I leave to her, but... Uh, yeah, luckily, um, within design and decent, a decent computer, powerful computer, it's, it's pretty quick nowadays. Do you ever, um, you know, it's obviously you've got to think of content regularly when you're working on these mm. titles. I mean, uh, <laughs> for example, Paul, I mean, do you ever sit there and you're like, you know, I've got a couple of articles to write this month? Well, like, like you said, um, like Dean said, we originally sat down uh, and just started knocking about a few ideas and put a few things down on a, like, a, you know, an Excel type spreadsheet you know with a uh, well i'd like to cover this i'd like to cover that and we did the same with um Mega addict as well but sometimes things just go out the window because all it takes is uh you know the few times where we've met up you know or you just start chatting or you know the odd time when you have like uh an hour the odd time you know where all of us are talking you know on discord or whatever and you go oh you know what's a good idea this or i've been playing such a game can we like have a look at the history of this or whatever and like i'm sure we all um have experienced you've got to make sure that the content isn't going to look too out of place in a particular issue um for example if you spoke to jonah uh the amount of time things do get jigged around a little bit you know where he's like yeah, yeah i'll put it in here he goes oh, actually it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the magazine or whatever in regards to dean uh we start having ideas since we start getting towards the close of a, a current issue you know like um just as you know that proofing and getting ready to be sent away you've got a few ideas in your mind going well dean i'm thinking about this what do you reckon and then you know within probably the next day at the latest you know you're back to us dean going yeah yeah go for it you know or just go into a bit of detail tell us what you're actually thinking and we'll have a look at it and again because he obviously he's got tons of experience uh i'm learning a lot you know and that's absolutely fantastic you know some things are dead small you know but then i, I still remember uh as i hold my hands up here uh the first reviewer did for dean was for monkey island on uh mega cd and it's having that uh, you know discipline and he goes right you're looking at about 450 words something like that and i think i did about 900 <laughs> you know straight away he sent it back and he just went okay yeah I, I like it you know i can see the passion but you just need to cut it down a bit and i was just like message back how much about 400 words. I remember to him just going, oh God, how am I going to cut out 400 words? That was like your introduction. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. But I feel like I'm getting, I'm getting better. The more I'm doing, you know, because obviously now I'm getting to know obviously what, you know, Dean wants and everything like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. It, it really, really is fun. I mean, I'm still, you know, like there's a review of, um, I've made as I'll say, Dean, via Clockwork uh, Aquario uh, in issue two. We spent about an hour as a team discussing, mm. you know, via rating 
for that game. And because I think I liked it a bit more. And then we had like a massive discussion over Messenger, over uh, value for money, things like that. And was it a fun game? And would you give scores for this? Would you give scores for that? Well, you can't give it that high if it only takes half an hour to complete. And, you know, this went on for a good hour. <laughs> and then it was like, right, guys, let me have a think about it. You know, and I was like, right, okay, I've taken it all on board. I'm going to go for this, you know. And it's good because things to discuss as a team you know like again when we do the re-reviews and not in every single one but when we're all giving our opinion um that never really gets tampered with because obviously it's your opinion you know um like the little talking heads and it's just nice it really really is you know um you know learning a lot here and through that that's when the ideas start to come because you're learning those new skills, you know, like say age 42 now. And, um, you know, this is what I wanted to do when I was a teenager and, you know, to see my words in print. Sorry, this is more of a sign off, but yeah, it's, it's just fantastic. Well, Ian, we've kind of seen uh, some amazing commercial interest in the magazine and, you know, a lot of people are really reliant on advertising in the uh, magazine industry. How have advertisers and uh, retailers kind of reacted to uh, what would be seen as a, a real niche? It's been a bit crazy, to be quite honest. I mean, um, and I give a lot of credit here to uh, to uh, Jonah's other half, uh, Hannah, who's a kind of advertising manager. But um, we've got people advertising in the magazine that are producing current Amiga hardware or are, have a current shop. We've also got people like uh, uh, Computer Exchange, CEX, who are uh, regularly uh, advertised with us, which is for... For for us is is a is a huge get kind of thing, um, just to to see people wanting to advertise in there, and it and it really helps our content as well because that nostalgia factor I mentioned before, some pe- people largely have a um, nostalgia even for the adverts you used to get in magazines, sort of going down your mail order lists and and seeing what's out this month. So being able to see new adverts in the magazine, people have said to us. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, it's great to see adverts in the magazine, which which seems like completely backwards in, from a kind of a capitalist consumerism kind of perspective. But it, it's it's part of what people remember and what people love about magazines. You know, what you need you need, you need those fast adverts in there. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. You wouldn't download a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, you've got a, a bit of news about. Um... Amiga Addict going into a retail space as well. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's kind of our biggest news at the moment. I mean, since since issue one, really, Joan has been talking about whether we could get the magazine onto the shelves. Because um, I mean, for 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 us, old as we are, <laughs> we can remember going into your your, your W H Smith or going to your John Menzies or, or whatever it was, and picking up the uh, your magazine directly off the shelf. And we've just signed a a retail deal to get the the magazine stocked in in a around 300 locations around the country so it'll be in in things like smiths and uh other news agents it'll be in train stations and airports and all these things it's going to be crazy for me just wandering around going i wrote some of that and it's on the shelf um so yeah it's it's really really a big news for us and i think it helps certainly people in the in the uk that might not want to pay the price of a magazine and then also pay the extra postage on top when they could just wander into the uh, the shop and pick it up themselves. So I'm hoping that will be uh, good news for all round, really. That's a big vote of confidence as well, having like the UK's leading news agent putting you on their show. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, 
we we definitely had to be at a certain level and and we we definitely need to tighten up our <laughs> our schedules to make sure that we meet because now we have deadlines to work to and all those sorts of things just to uh to you know keep the keep the uh, retailers happy and all those sorts of things but no it's a it's a big vote of confidence that we were able to uh get that agreement made and uh and we'll see how it goes so i mean look out in your local news agents and you'll be able to request it in if you know, we used to get those little slips of paper in the back of Smiths or whatever. Say, I, I, I want to get my uh, copy of Amiga Addict stocked in, in in my local store. You'll be able to do all that kind of stuff as well. So, you used to have a little form that you could rip out the magazine, didn't you? I, you we, fill in and give to your news yeah, agent. I was having that discussion with Jonah just the other day. We might be doing that. Yeah. So. Oh wow! I newsy save my magazine. You know, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, the you know the retro gaming magazine market right now is really healthy. I mean, we've got other stuff like Old School Gamer Mag. You know, we've got Chris Wilkins doing his Fusion and Zap sixty four revival and Crash as well. And obviously, Retro Gamer that comes out every month. So it feels like it's in a really good place right now, and it's amazing to see you guys doing such quality products as well. Well, I mean, Dean, tell us what's coming up on in Sega Powered then. I mean, is issue three on the way soon? What can we kind of expect next? Uh, yes. Yeah, we're kind of part of the way through that one now. We're kind of, because um, we had the second one ready for Doncaster show last weekend. Um, so that was good. But we're very aware that, you know, deadlines creep up ever so quickly. We are trying to stick it uh, to a monthly schedule. But what's what's interesting, actually, going back to what somebody was saying earlier, is, is the amount of you kind of think, oh, God, are we going to be struggling around for features here? But there's so much going on still in, in the whole Sega community. And there's so much new stuff being developed um, that there's much higher percentage of kind of new things that we're covering that I, I didn't think we, we'd have, and so, which is great. Um, but we're just well to give you an idea of what we've got in the next one, we've got an interview with Paul Davis, who um, people will know from things like CNBG and things like that. We've got a big cover feature on Shenmue, which is the classic uh, Yu Suzuki game. We kind of that kind of broke a lot of boundaries with things like open world games and story games, and kind of the whole life cycle and, and uh, day to night cycle, and really created a game that you can live. Um, so we're going to kind of a, a proper look at that. But we're getting some guys who really know the game to help us with the feature because they're kind of experts. So we're kind of bringing them in. Gosh, we've got all sorts of weird and wonderful things. We're looking at things like uh, Japanese to uh, Western translations of games, things that were missed out from Japanese translations when they brought to the West. We've got something on the Master System in Brazil, um, looking at that and some of the games that, again, were released only over there. Um, and loads of, we've got a few new, uh, brand new games to review and loads of other things as well. <laughs> Well, SegaPowered.com is a website if people want to check it out and uh, get hold of a copy of it. I'll put that in our show notes as well. Um, Thank you. And obviously, we've got um, Amiga Addict issue 11 on the way. Ian, what can we expect from that? Um, so it's a, it's a good time to ask, really, because it's the, uh, um, of course, the new Amiga Mini is coming out soon. So we're getting a, a, a review unit of that coming along so we can kind of give people a view of what, what the hardware's like, whether it works particularly well or uh, what they can expect from it. We've got all our kind of regular features around like uh, the sort of creative software. We've got the second part of our cinema, Cinemaware feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got some uh, interviews with uh, Amiga Power and the people that used to work on that. A uh, view of like uh, the Buffy project for the sort of cheap accelerators for the Amiga. So we've got all sorts of things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling down our, uh, our spreadsheet <laughs> right now. just pulling out. I, I don't remember these things, but yeah, yeah. it's uh, We've got loads of stuff coming up and, and we've, we've already planned out for the next few months as well. Well, that's uh, AmigaAddict.com or uh, 
hopefully in a branch of WH Smith near you very soon as well. So, uh, Jens, it's been an absolute pleasure, not only reminiscing, but also talking about your uh, incredible new magazines as well. Long may it continue. And that uh, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. 